Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our current series with Dr. Newfeld, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, we'll study the topic of giving and receiving grace. So let's begin in our text from the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. Matthew 18, 21 to 25 records Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant. There was a servant who had accumulated a debt against his master, a debt so large that it was the equivalent in today's world of perhaps seven or eight billion dollars. What had he done to incur such a debt? Jesus never said, and it is a parable, and I suppose it doesn't matter. Perhaps he had poured endless money into a failing investment. Perhaps it was gambling at an unprecedented level. But whatever it was, the debt was astonishing. And of course, he had no ability to repay that debt, money that had come from the wealth of his master. You know, in the ancient world, this kind of a debt would mean that he and his wife and his children would be sold into a lifetime of slavery, no exceptions and no mercy. Let this be a lesson to anyone else who thinks he can get away with this kind of a thing. The result is not only personal ruin for the servant, the result is suffering for both he and his family as all are sold into slavery, perhaps even to cruel slave masters. Life will now be harsh and grim. His future has grown dark and hopeless. In desperation, facing the consequences of ruin, he fell at the feet of his master pleading for mercy. He lost all dignity, and the chance that this approach would succeed must have been next to nothing. But it was all he could do. And then amazingly and unexpectedly, in an act of unprecedented mercy, the master didn't put him on a payment plan, but released him from all indebtedness. In an instant, his servant walked away from personal ruin into the sunlit world of grace. It was astonishing mercy, to say the least. No sooner had the servant been released from his personal catastrophe that he went out and found a man who owed him, let's say, the equivalent of $20,000. That's a significant amount, to be sure, but it is insignificant against the greater mercy that had been afforded to him this very same day. But this unmerciful servant grabbed his fellow colleague by the neck and demanded he repay it all. And when the fellow servant pleaded for mercy, he found none. He was thrown into a debtor's prison. When the master heard what had transpired, for the word got out, he called in the servant whom had been forgiven. And the master's very first words were, you wicked servant. Now I know there are some who hear this and might even say, you know, why is he wicked? Is it wicked to demand from a man what is owed? Didn't this man owe him $20,000? Doesn't he have the right to require the repayment? I mean, after all, just because your debt has been forgiven, does that mandate that you must forgive the other? Well, apparently Jesus thought so. His parable ends with a master throwing the unmerciful servant into prison. And then Jesus said, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. See, once you have received mercy, you are now in an obligation Mercy received means we are obligated to a life in which we extend mercy to others. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he begins with a series of beatitudes that leaves the hearers under no illusions. Every citizen of his kingdom got there because of the mercy of the king. After all, the citizens of Christ's kingdom were overwhelmingly aware of their own spiritual poverty. They had in the end nothing to contribute to Christ's eternal kingdom. 
If Christ was announcing the coming of his kingdom, which would eventually triumph over all the kingdoms of this world, then who is worthy of inheriting such a kingdom? And the answer is none. Indeed, those invited into Christ's kingdom were all, without exception, overwhelmed by their own spiritual poverty. And so the only way anyone ever entered into the kingdom of heaven was on the basis of mercy, which was more than the equivalent of having a personal indebtedness of billions being forgiven. And with that, we move forward. I'm reading Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's remember that as we have noticed, none of the Beatitudes describe how we got into the kingdom, but rather the reality of those who are in the kingdom. Those in the kingdom are merciful. And in the end, when the day of judgment arrives, when God will judge every human being for their sin, they will receive mercy. Mercy means at least two things. First, mercy is compassion and love for people who are suffering and needy. Now, I know in our world in which suffering is constantly being portrayed in the media from every part of the globe, from from famines to wars to acts of crime and violence to people who live in abject poverty, the amount of information that all of us have surely makes even the most compassionate individual feel overwhelmed and desensitized. I mean, how am I to be merciful? But do you remember Jesus' account of the Good Samaritan? The entire telling of that parable came about as a question Jesus was asked. Who is my neighbor? Who am I accountable to? And the answer, according to Jesus, had everything to do with a traveler who came across a suffering individual. I remember a number of years ago, it was Sunday evening in late October, and Kathy and I were rushing out of our driveway in the car, and I had an evening service to lead, and it was already late. The sun had just set, and it was dusk. The weather was quite crisp and cool. I started down the road, and then suddenly I put on my brakes and pulled over. I had seen something across the road from my house, but I had paid no attention. After all, I was in a hurry, but it seemed as if the Holy Spirit was sternly speaking to me. Didn't you see that? Well, I guess I had, but who has the time to deal with everyone's problems? Well, I had to turn around. There across from our house was an elderly Asian woman sitting on the sidewalk. She had on a dress, and it was cold on the concrete sidewalk where she sat, and she appeared to be crying. She spoke no English, but I could see that she was Korean. And Kathy and I took her to the home of a Korean couple where we heard her story. She had come to visit her children who had immigrated to Canada, and since it was a lovely day, she had decided to go for a walk and had become completely lost. Because she didn't know the way to go home and because she couldn't speak the language, she couldn't get home. And now the sun had set, and she was about to spend the night in a foreign land on a cold sidewalk. And she had just sat down to weep when I went flying by on the way to church. I'm, I'm still so thankful the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. I know this. The Lutheran scholar Richard Lenski said that the mercy spoken of in this parable grows out of the personal experience of the mercy of God. It is to live on a daily basis, always aware of the fact that mercy has been received, and therefore I am indebted to others. It might be, as I think, one is better served in giving to an organization like Compassion Canada than giving directly to needy people. But I also know that compassion does not end when I give to an organization. I will suddenly realize that I have a neighbor, as I did that day with an elderly woman sitting on a cold sidewalk across from my house. 
Now, mercy means at least two things. It does mean we show compassion for the suffering and the needy, but it also means forgiveness for those who are guilty. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, To have a merciful spirit means the spirit that is displayed when you suddenly find yourself in the position of having in your power someone who has transgressed against you. See, every one of us has a list of people who has sinned against us. And we know that Christ demands that we forgive our enemies. Now, I know forgiveness and reconciliation are two different matters. See, reconciliation demands that the transgressor repents, but forgiveness makes no such demands. And there's more. Forgiveness in many ways blesses the person who forgives. It means we release all bitterness and we release all demands to exact revenge even when the other will not repent. Yes, reconciliation is not possible when the other does not repent, but forgiveness, forgiveness can be freely given. And here's the test. If it should ever come about that we have the opportunity to settle the score with the one who has wounded us, we have decided in advance that we will forgo the opportunity. See, did you notice the difference between this and the strict demands of justice? A merciful man or woman can demand justice when it affects others, for then they are being merciful to the victims. Not to protect victims is showing also a lack of concern or even a lack of mercy. We are called upon to be workers of righteousness and of justice. But when it comes to ourselves, and that was the whole point when Jesus said that the meek are blessed. When it comes to ourselves, we become meek. Mercy is given where none is deserved. More when we come back. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 challenge us to learn how to be merciful as his followers, extending compassion, grace, and forgiveness to those who need it the most. The Lord demands this quality from us in our everyday lives as proof that we've been shown mercy through the example of Christ himself. Stay with us as we continue to look at what Jesus taught about the pure in heart and the peacemakers right after the break. You may have already heard the news, but in the spring of 2017, we're taking 80 guests on a whirlwind tour of ancient Greece. Be sure to register for the New Testament Greece by Land and by Sea Tour, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again. Join us on this incredible journey to discover the location where the Apostle Paul took the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be inspired in your walk with God and so much more. For information, please visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's go to the next beatitude. Matthew 5 verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've noticed that each beatitude is attached to a promise. Those who are inheriting the kingdom are promised the kingdom of heaven to come. Comfort after many tears. They will inherit the earth. They will be satisfied. And their lot in the final day of judgment is that they will experience mercy and not judgment. But now a new promise. They will see God. 
See, I do know this. There can be no greater reward. When I hear Jesus say that, I immediately think of a a number of New Testament passages that promise the very same thing. 1 John 3, 2-3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, clearly, John does not mean that we will be like God in the sense that we're omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. He means that we will be like God in purity. That is, we will morally be without sin. But what does it mean to see God? See, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, we read, For now we see in a mirror, but then face to face, in some fashion. And the Bible doesn't explain how this can be so, for God is spirit and not corporal. And in a sense, there is nothing for us to see, but in some fashion, we will see him. That's the promise. But Jesus made it clear who it is that would see him. It is the pure in heart. And it is here for the first time in the Beatitudes that Jesus deliberately creates a sense of dissonance. See, on the one hand, we've seen how Jesus offers the kingdom to those who acknowledge their own brokenness of spirit and do not hide their own sin. And on the other hand, he demands purity. Later in the sermon, in Matthew 5, verse 20, he will say, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then later in verse 48, he will say, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so how do we bring these two elements together? I think the answer lies in the explanation of what purity means. I'm going to say that for Jesus, it means two things. First, purity of heart means an inner moral purity as opposed to an external ritualistic purity. Remember that the Pharisees were much concerned with the external. I mean, things like washing of cups and rules around Sabbath keeping. I mean, we could go on and on, but all of their righteousness was external. And so for Jesus to insist that the righteousness of his followers exceed that of the Pharisees, he seems to have meant that the righteousness he demanded was internal. It dealt with the heart's inner desire and longing, the cleansing of the inner being, not on the external observing of rules. But second, purity of heart means a single-mindedness, or to put it another way, a heart freed from the tyranny of the divided self. Look at it this way. If I were to offer you a cup of pure water, you would expect that that water would contain no additives of any kind. It would be 100% H2O. And that's what purity means. It means only one thing. In essence, that's what Jesus has in mind here when he speaks of purity. It means that his followers are purified from all other desires. See, the Beatitudes are somewhat repetitious and follow a, a logical progression of thought. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, it follows logically that you're also going to be pure in heart. It means you want only one thing, righteousness, God's kingdom, to see God, to celebrate the victory of the kingdom. You have no divided loyalty at all. Jesus is not arguing that his followers are morally perfect, but he is saying that his followers have only one passion, only one desire. They would see the kingdom. There aren't two loyalties or two different masters. Even though they sin and they mourn over it, they still hunger and thirst for a day when sin is defeated and Christ rules over all. Now to the seventh beatitude found in Matthew 5 verse 9. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I wonder if there's ever been a more misunderstood teaching of Jesus than this one. This verse has been used by everyone from those who try to negotiate peace treaties between nations to those who work on advocacy groups to those who counsel warring parties in a marriage gone bad. I mean, blessed are the peacemakers all depends on what our view of peace is. You see, for some it means pacifism, and for others it means having the biggest military which discourages other lesser nations from going to war. Now, to be fair, I think the spirit of the kingdom of heaven and the witness of Jesus surely leads to elements that brings peace between nations and the renouncing of violence. Jesus' words while being nailed to the cross, pleading for the forgiveness of the one who nailed him there, have had much impact even upon nations themselves. The love of the one who laid down his life for his enemies is an ideal that has had great impact on those who seek to forgive and to be reconciled to their own enemies. There can be no doubt that peacemaking in its many forms should be thought of as the ideal of the kingdom of God. But how should we understand Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, first of all, we do well at this point to notice how often the ideal of peace finds its way into this sermon. Chapter 5, verse 39 is a call to turn the other cheek rather than to respond in violence. Chapter 5, verse 44 is the call to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Chapter 7, verses 3 to 5 counsels us to take the log out of our own eye long before we try to take the speck out of the eye of our brother. And chapter 7, verse 12, contains the very famous golden rule which demands that whatever we would wish others to do for us, we do for them. Put together, we might view the entire Sermon on the Mount as a call for peacemaking of a most radical kind. See, the peace that Jesus envisioned has so much more than the cessation of hostility and war, as laudable as those things are. But Jesus spoke of an ethic in which the citizens of his kingdom were actively seeking to bless even those whom they disliked. To offer love and goodness to an enemy is something that most of us find almost incomprehensible. Whether in the world of politics or business or sports or in almost every other endeavor where human beings try to get ahead, too often this is done not by blessing your competitor or enemy, but by destroying him or her. But Jesus has been talking about a kingdom made up of citizens who are genuinely broken up not first by the sins of others, but by their own poverty of spirit and who have mourned and become meek. And as a result, they have come to see the world differently. Instead of demanding justice for transgressors, they look for ways to extend mercy. And as such, their internal mechanism makes them into men and women of peace. Yes, it is true that the servants of the king know that the kingdoms of this world and the workings of evil will come to an end, and so they eagerly seek the end of all injustice and evil. But in the midst of this, they long for men and women to know what they have already known. We are all poor of spirit, and we all deserve wrath. Peacemaking is just another expression of mercy. See, every one of us who have been forgiven by God for our sins have, as years go by, become ever more aware of the nature of the kind of mercy we have received. And that one fact makes us less aggressive and demanding of our own way and more merciful and extending our hands out to others. Once we have been given grace, it becomes imperative that grace marks our way. Once I have been made aware of how much debt has been forgiven, 
I long for ways of forgiving the debt of others. Heavenly Father, I pray, make all of your people merciful so that we extend to others the very kind of mercy that we have received from your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. John, one of the things I think about mercy is that sometimes we need a perspective, a mature perspective of it. Sometimes we can get so overwhelmed by perhaps the demands of mercy for others, and we lose a little bit of perspective of how much mercy has been granted to us. Yeah, isn't it amazing how those two concepts, that is the mercy I receive from God and the mercy that God demands that I give to others, I mean, those two concepts are connected in Jesus. Uh, so I think uh, if we start by contemplating the sins that have been forgiven, perhaps what's required before I even start to you know, reach out to the person who needs mercy from me is that I need to begin by reflecting on how significant my own sins were. Uh, and then once I, I, I get a handle on how great is my sin, maybe I need to get a handle on what it cost Christ to forgive my transgression. You know, and, and then when we start to, you know, kind of reach into the, the reality of the, you know, the blood and guts of human experience with one another and the offenses that we do on a regular basis, um, it, it is amazing how this overwhelming sense of God's kindness to me does begin to transform my, my understanding of how I should respond to someone else. It really does help us, doesn't it, to extend mercy once we get a good sense of who we are in Christ and what's being done for us. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we need to ask the Lord, Lord, open my eyes to see. And then perhaps we need to also say, if I extend mercy to someone else, would that not be a small thing rather than a great thing? Uh, I think we start there. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Do these biblical terms describe your character in Christ? Well, certainly it would seem that Jesus demands his followers to display qualities that are literally out of this world. So much is expected of us as his representatives on earth. And yet as we live out these principles, we find out there is no greater way to be than to follow his example. Tune in again tomorrow as Dr. Newfeld wraps up week one of the greatest sermon ever preached, looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 to 12. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In his book, Studies in the Sermon of the Mount, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, There is nothing, surely, which exhorts us more than this Sermon on the Mount to be what we were meant to be and to live as we were meant to live, to be like Christ by being a complete contrast to everyone who does not belong to Christ. We hope you've been enjoying listening to Dr. Neufeld's current series on Jesus' most famous sermon. Through it, our Lord teaches us what a citizen of his kingdom really looks like and how he calls us to live in the light of our identity. But as we're discovering so far, this journey is far from easy. Worthwhile, yes, but a calling that demands our ultimate allegiance to Christ alone. Did you know that you can order your own copy of this special five-week series on CD? And this month, purchase the greatest sermon ever preached 
for just $35, including shipping and handling. So keep listening and ask for this great series today by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or purchase it by visiting backtothebible.ca.